You're listening to At Large, a global affairs podcast brought to you by China U.S. Focus. Thanks for joining us. And here's your host, James Chow. From New York, I'm James Chow with this special edition of At Large at the end of the UN General Assembly. The 73rd session had the expected fireworks, given that we live in a time of deep global divisions, and at a time also where many of us in the 7.5 billion human family are asking ourselves where we fit in a rapidly changing world order. If you haven't been to a UN General Assembly, it's quite the gathering. There is nothing like it. This year, there were 193 member states represented, many of them by heads of state and government, and also the advocates for a strong, safe, and secure global future. You had political figures like Donald Trump, Wang Yi, Emmanuel Macron, Jacinda Ardern, and Theresa May. All of them part of an exclusive global power club. Champions like Mohammed Yunus, the Nobel Peace Prize winner and microfinance economist from Bangladesh, who's helping drive the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, of course, underpinning the way the world has agreed to move forward from now to the year 2030. Michael Bloomberg, Bill Melinda Gates, who invited some of us to their Goalkeepers event, and many more. I was there this year to speak on health. In fact, two of this year's high-level meetings were centered on this subject, namely tuberculosis and non-communicable diseases (NCDs), being the broad grouping that includes cancers, cardiovascular diseases, mental health, respiratory illnesses, and diabetes. Put together, the biggest killers in the world today. It shocks me still that we, as a world, do not choose to leverage health as the pivot around which we can drive development, security, and economic prosperity. It is the key that can turn the lock, and is evidenced by the global response to HIV and AIDS since the 1980s. Health is the transformational tool that can get everyone onto one side. Now, speaking of AIDS and more widely health, there were many long-time activists at this UN General Assembly. Eric Goose. And Mark Dybul, both of whom served as global health ambassadors for the United States under its PEPFAR program, that has saved millions of lives, and that's no exaggeration. Dr. Tedros, the very effective former Ethiopian health minister, who of course is now director general of the World Health Organization, and Jim Kim, best known as the incumbent World Bank president, who in a previous life was head of HIV at WHO. Kofi Annan was a former alumnus of WHO. He started his career there, and he was sorely missed. Along the main corridors, you enter the Secretariat building. There was a thick black velvet band wrapped around his official portrait, in recognition, of course, of his recent death, and this being the first General Assembly without him. This is At Large, your weekly podcast on China, the U.S., and the world. Keep listening. For this podcast, I thought that we would remove ourselves from some of the more headline-grabbing moments that you would have all heard about, and instead refocus on the substantive work that occurred. If we're talking about China and the United States, and a good place to start will be the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. I choose this issue not only because security in Northeast Asia is critical ultimately to all of us, whether we're aware of it or not, but also because it's the one area where there is proof that. Beijing and Washington 
can work together for good. You'll remember the Singapore summit in April. That was a direct result of collaborative work between the two countries, leveraging China's ability to reach out to Kim Jong-un and his government in North Korea, and recognizing that Donald Trump wanted to bring him out of the cold and into the warm inclusiveness of the international community. Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, underlined the opportunity and used his platform at the General Assembly to remind the world of what is still at stake. China supports the important common understandings reached between the DPRK and U.S. leaders at the Singapore summit and supports the DPRK and ROK in improving their relations. We call upon all parties to seize the current opportunities, turn the political consensus into concrete actions and work in the direction of setting up a peace mechanism on the peninsula and the denuclearization on the peninsula to realize lasting peace on the peninsula at an early date. There needs now to be a sense of urgency that the breakthrough that everybody achieved must be carried forward to a next stage. I don't think we've seen that, and I think the North Koreans also feel that the goodwill demonstrated on its own part isn't being reciprocated. What you don't want to see, of course, is Pyongyang rearming itself, so to speak, and more deeply losing the momentum that is historic. Mr. Trump was right in saying that he had done what no American president had done before him, with help from China, he admits he was the one who managed to get Kim back to the table. But that table's not just for show, it is for working. Stephen Nopa is Senior Director for Policy at the Korea Society. He sees a natural synergy for getting everyone together. And maybe China still has a unique role to offer. For many years, it was the host of the six-party talks, the other five being North and South Korea, Japan, Russia and the US. A peaceful peninsula can only be useful for everyone's interests. Or is it? Here's Nopa on that. The reality now is that China and the United States are the two large powers whose interests converge on the peninsula, along with Russia and Japan. But with the war realities and the end of war and the idea of a forward-leaning statement, one would think it would bring China into the fold. And the Koreans have said it needs to either be three parties, the United States, North Korea, and South Korea, which is not uh, a signatory to the armistice. Uh, but they've also said, by necessity, probably China too. Another nuclear issue now, this time in Iran, under Barack Obama, as you'll remember, the U.S. signed onto what is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. It was great, at least while it happened, and it's still happening, but now without the U.S. under the current administration. Who's still in? You've got China, France, Germany, Russia, and add to that the European Union. So what their representatives had to figure out in New York was A, do we try and get Washington back on board at the risk that even if it does, there's still every chance it would withdraw again? Or B, find a way to creatively move forward without the US and without flouting American sanctions and without triggering its anger? Let's hear first from Wang Yi again. And once he's set the stage, let's listen to Jonathan Broder, senior writer at Newsweek, for his take on what all of this means to us. The JCPOA on the Iranian nuclear issue is a hard-won achievement of multilateralism conducive to international nuclear non-proliferation and peace and stability in the Middle East. There is no international agreement that is perfect. You'll notice that China is raising its profile in the world in terms of its global leadership. 
at a time when the United States is withdrawing. The United States is cutting back its funding for the United Nations, pulling out of uh, the Paris Accords. Uh, China is very much a part of that accord. Mm -hmm. So the peacekeeping operations are very much a symbol of China's effort to fill the void that the United States is leaving. There's commentary also from Saurabh Gupta. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for China-American Studies. And it's interesting because he provides a reminder that someone's breaking a promise. And without that promise being kept, Iran could walk away like the North Koreans threatened to do. They are trying to do the best that they can do at their end. It really, I think, boils down to the Japanese, the P4 plus one, which also includes China and Russia, as to how they help ensure a payments mechanism for Iran so that Iran feels it has not been cheated in this deal. So, of course, the sanctions are going to come in, the secondary sanctions are going to be imposed. But frankly, if there's that mechanism for payment of oil to the, to, to the Iranians, I think we will at least be able to see have the Iranians stay in the deal. We have to understand one thing out here. The Iran deal is a Security Council resolution. It is international law. Uh, Countries should not be punished by the United States for observing international law by, with secondary sanctions. But we need to see how, how robust the process is and how strongly people champion it. Now, this is the way it works. Everyone needs encouragement, including or maybe especially the most hard line of leaders. So if North Korea or Iran are beginning to play by an internationally designed set of rules, you don't push them away, but you bring them closer to you. The U.S. has withdrawn from the Iran nuclear deal, is withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement, and it could also withdraw as it threatens to do with North Korea. And this is not to single out Washington, but actually to recognize the unique value it carries. Some analysts will say that America's right to claim moral leadership in the world has expired. I don't agree with that. It always has time to do the right thing. So an eventful UN General Assembly, it certainly was. And more than ever, I think multilateralism was alive. Dented, clipped and under threat, perhaps, but alive all the same. You've been listening to At Large with James Chow. For more episodes, you can go to ChinaUSFocus.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe at Google Play Music, SoundCloud and more. Thanks for joining us.